Welcome, ladies and divorce professionals. You are listening to the Divorce for Wealthy Women podcast, where we dive into complex and sometimes taboo topics relating to divorce and women. Specifically, we often discuss how affluent women can maintain their lifestyles during and post-divorce. Join me as we talk to the most sought-after divorce professionals across the globe and share powerful tips that you can take along with you no matter where you are in your journey. So we're going to be jumping right into my interview with David York. So this introduction is going to be a little longer than normal because I really want you to get a feeling of who he is because you are going to be blown away when you listen to his knowledge base is it's just insane when he works with ultra high net worth clients. So David's a estate planning attorney and a CPA with more than 25 years experience. He's worked with thousands, thousands and thousands of clients, including billionaires, business owners, celebrities, sports figures, you name it. He really understands, and this is rare. So that's why I'm having him on is he understands first-generation wealth creators, and the fifth-generation retainers, and everything else in between. So he works with individuals, he works with families, he works with couples, all on the wealth spectrum, and helps make a difference in what he calls an all-too-broken world, which I agree with. When he started his practice, he saw all these common traits and characteristics of people doing really good with their wealth, and then were successful with their wealth transfer, and intentional and with purpose, but then he also saw the opposite and what tragedy can happen when wealthy families don't transfer money. So he's going to be talking to us so much today about lots of different topics, um, a lot about the lies and myths around money and happiness, and really just what is a stewardship to, to him and what he's seen in his years of experience and how to have impact in the world. And we'll talk about divorce, of course. And I actually got to meet David because he was a keynote speaker at a very, very uh, powerful conference that I attended this year. And so we're very fortunate to have him on today. Please listen and rewind and listen again if you want to. And let me know if you have any questions at all. And how to get a hold of David will be in the show notes at the end of the podcast. Well, hi, David. Thanks so much for joining today. Thanks uh, for taking your time to come here and talk to us about this fun topic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to it, Olivia. Yeah, this is so much fun to be able to talk about something that you're an expert on. You go across the country talking about this. So I would like you to share... um, the first thing I actually want you to share is what's a lie or a myth about money for the ultra high net worth world to know about? Let's let's talk about that. Let's get in depth. Yeah, you know, I, I would I would say this. There's there's two that come to mind, especially when I think about the ultra high net worth. One is that money equals happiness. Um, and I think that is just uh, such a falsehood that exists out there that unfortunately you know we might all buy into but it's only the actually the ultra high net worth who actually figure out that that's not true right it's kind of like that mirage that's always in front of you um that maybe makes you go forward um and you know the, the reality is it's, that's just not the case and then 
the second thing I think of, and I talk with clients about this all the time, and, and I literally bat a thousand um, when we talk about this, but it's that the, the ultra high net worth were lied to. They were told that if you go out and accumulate a lot of wealth and a lot of resources, that you won't have a care or worry in the world. Uh, and it's just a lie. You know, the clients that I work with, uh, the men and women I work with, they, they find that wealth tends to add burden and responsibility and obligation and that all the decisions they make impact not just their their children but grandchildren or great-grandchildren their in-laws their extended family the communities they live in the businesses they run the the employees of those businesses so um the reality is that that all that hard work and effort ends up resulting in a lot of hard work and effort yeah and i I know you've shared that it's it, it creates the overwhelming sensation and exhaustion and they're vilified by society and that's um tends to turn into so many more issues so i i love the answer i i know you speak about this again publicly in keynote speeches all the time and in your books but that's absolutely what i see with wealthy women divorcing is they even feel more isolated. I know you've said before too, because of their wealth. And that's absolutely the experience I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. And it's, um, and unfortunately by and large, I think the sad reality is a lot of the professionals they work with, um, are honestly more envious of who they are than they are empathetic of their situation. And um, so you have people who come in and they come in with different motivations and their own personal uh, uh, values on this. You know, the reality is um, most don't understand that obligation that comes with that. And so unfortunately, a lot of high net worth people and especially, you know, a lot of my uh, divorced female clients, it's, it's easy to feel kind of targeted and suspicious uh, as people come along um, and try to connect with them. Absolutely. That is exactly that entire sentence and phrase you just said is why I wanted you on today, because I, one of the biggest parts of my career is to bring in experts for my clients when they're going through a divorce that are not envious of their wealth, that don't just want to manage their assets and help them after the divorce because they're wealthy and they want that lifestyle as well as a professional. It's so hard to find that. And I'm so thankful that you're sharing this message. And that's why, again, you're on this podcast today because man, it is the hardest thing to find professionals who have the same value system that understand that overwhelmed feeling that understand the ultra high net worth and understand that it's so difficult and, and that dissatisfaction in life grows as you make more and you want more and, and actually working on values is so important as well. And money does not make you extremely happy. It can, but it's not the definition. So that's so great. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, and even and if it does, I mean, I, no one is going to argue that there isn't uh, a benefit that you can receive um, from uh, wealth, you know. It, um, but at the same time, it is so temporary if you don't have something undergirding it, um, and um, it, it it ends up being just a temporary jolt, and then you're back in the position that you were. Yeah, I mean, that's. Can you give us an example on some happiness? Let's let's talk about that. 
Yeah, you know, um, it, it's just fascinating to me to see, um, you know, I, I think one of the one of the myths uh, that I talk about a lot with with clients and, and when I speak is that that all we need to be content in life, you know, is just a little bit more. Right. You know, if we just had a, just a little bit more. Um, but the reality is they did a survey among the wealthiest Americans. Uh, U.S. trusted this a couple of years ago. And only were only about half were actually satisfied with how they spent their money. Only about fewer than half were satisfied with how they spent their time. Uh, less than 20% said that more money would make life better. And only 4% said more things would make their life better. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a fascinating, you look at just homes, for example. So from um, 1973, uh, to 2015, the average size of a home in America increased from 1,500 square feet to 2,500 square feet. Um, and you think about that, during that period of time, the number of children that people had decreased by about half. Um, so back in the day, you know, you'd have a family of, of six in 1,500 square feet. Now you got a family, uh, you know, with, with two or three people um, in, in a home twice the size. Um, and so the average square footage in America has gone from about 500 square feet per person in the 1970s, uh, to almost a thousand square feet per person today. And yet no change in overall satisfaction, uh, when it comes to homes. Um, so not, not any increased perceived level of happiness, even though the size of our homes has doubled. Um, although it was, it was fascinating that these researchers actually found that there was one, there was one factor that correlated with a decrease in overall perceived happiness, uh, with respect to your home. You, you know what that, that is? What is it? I, I have a guess that it's probably something to do with if you have more restrooms and bathrooms, is that it? Yeah, you might. Yeah. That's what I would, that's what I would have thought. It's yeah. Actually, it's actually if a neighbor builds a bigger house. Oh, <laughs> So it's, it's, you know, we literally have a decreased perception of happiness of our own home if somebody builds a bigger home next to us. Oh, yeah. Wow. But, but other than that, it honestly doesn't move the needle uh, for us. Um, a lot of those things that we think do. Wow. So where does happiness actually fit in with meaning in life? Let's. You know, it's, it's, that is, I think to me, that is the quintessential question um, really for life. And, they did a fascinating study uh, a couple of years ago, uh, researchers, and they wanted to, to uh, look at similarities, um, correlations or differences between meaning and happiness. And to nobody's great surprise, by and large, there was a correlation between the two. In other words, people who said they were happier tended to have higher levels of meaning. People who tended to be less happy had lower levels of, of meaning. But they found five key areas where there was a difference between happiness and meaning. And I think this is where the, the, the wealth of the, the value of the study was. The first is they said health, wealth, and ease of life were all elements of happiness, but they actually had no correlation to meaning. So, you know, if you were in great health, if you had lots of money, if you had a pretty easy life, um, that tended to correlate with, with being happier. And yet it did not have any correlation to meaning at all. They found people 
who could find meaning in life across the financial spectrum, across the health spectrum, life experience. Um, two, happiness was seen based in someone's current situation where meaning incorporated the past, the present, and the future. You know, and I, I, I you know I see that in my life so often. My, my personal happiness tends to bob up and down like the, you know, the tide going in and out. It's based just on circumstance. Whereas as people who experience meaning that spread across, uh, they, they pulled from the past to give meaning to the present and it drove what they did in the future. Mm. Um, third, uh, happiness was seen as flowing from receiving where meaning was a product of giving. Um, and I, I think that is so true. Um, fourth, uh, and is that meaningful lives tended to actually involve more difficulty, you know, and I, and I see that a lot, you know, in life, you know, so often we want to avoid difficulty. We want to avoid struggle, but you know, the, the, the mom who the, 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 the single mom who's dealing with a special needs child, she may not have a lot of happiness in life, but she probably has deep, rich meaning. Um, and then the, the last one I thought was one of the most interesting. And they said that self-expression correlated more with meaning than with happiness. Um, and I, I think for those of us who, who can, get, can gather a sense of meaning in life, it actually allows us to more be who we really are than constantly seeking outward uh, hits of happiness. Mm, that's Those are really good. I think I'll put that in the show notes, those five, so people can see and visually look at that while they're listening. Uh, cause those are really good five things about happiness and, and meaning. And it just, it doesn't come naturally to think that way. Like happiness was seen as a flowing from receiving while meaning is a product of giving like that doesn't, it makes sense, but you don't think of that every second of the day. So that's helpful. That's very helpful. Um, I love habits. So we're going to switch gears and can you tell us more about, I know you've done and seen a lot of studies on this about habits and happiness. Can you go into more detail? Cause that's love my habits. So tell us more. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, um, uh, I, I think the, the, one of the quintessential, um, characteristics, um, of, um, meaning of, um, value of purpose in life actually has to do with cost. Um, and uh, engaging in costs. And honestly, um, I think in society, you know, cost often comes with pain. It often comes with um, difficulty or struggle. Um, but the clients that I see that um, have the most impact are actually those that live with the most meaning and purpose. They do engage in those daily habits that cost them. Um, you know, getting up early, exercising every day, um, having just having spent that time of clarity of understanding um, who they are, what they value and what they believe um, and um, investing in themselves, giving to others. All of those things come with an element of cost, uh, but that's the only time we can actually get to an understanding of of value. And I think that that's unfortunately something that by and large, we try to avoid in uh, too much of society today. Yeah, I know. 
uh, in one of your speeches, you've said that meaningful lives are more involved with difficulty. I like that quote as well. Just it's, you're right, the cost and pain are associated with it, especially with habits um, and happiness. So do, do you think that there's any myths about money that we as a culture, at least in America, have? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said, I think contentedness uh, is one of those. The other one that I'll say uh, is that a dollar equals a dollar. Um, I, I think actually how you receive a dollar has tremendous impact on how you value that dollar. So I'll give you an example. In the United States, um, the average inheritance, in other words, the average amount that, that Americans receive an inheritance when their parents die is consumed in 18 months. Um, so what people accumulate over the course of their life is on average consumed within 18 months. And, you know, I know a lot of the high net worth, ultra high net worth say, well, that's true. Just, you know, the average American, but we have great financial advisors. We have uh, plans. Uh, we have expertise. Uh, they did a study, even among the wealthiest Americans, the average half-life of inherited wealth is eight years. Um, so what that means is you take what someone would inherit and on average, even among the wealthiest Americans, that's cut in half every eight years. Um, and the reality is, it's because by and large, inheritance comes without cost. And when there's no cost, there's no value. Uh, and, and, you know, 25 years of doing estate planning, that's probably the, the most fundamental thing I've learned is that we value things based on what they, they cost us. And when, we, when something doesn't cost us anything, we just can't value it like something that comes with cost. Mm, and I think that's we could go into, you know, what it is to work with the experience of credit cards or even my financial planning background of a decade with wealth managing and seeing inheritance coming through. And yeah, that's all stuff we could talk about so much that a dollar does not always equal a dollar. Um, and even using credit cards or philanthropy, I know there's a lot more we could talk about um, that you go into in your books as well as in your speeches. So that's a great place to to start there. And maybe we do another episode talking just about that, more on the that end of things. I do, though, want to get into something I'm so curious about, and I know listeners will be as well, is what are the four Ds in wealth? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, unfortunately, and this is where I see, you know, sometimes um, system, you know, so often systems create results, right? You know, um, What's that saying is every every system is perfectly designed to produce the outcome that it that it creates. Um, and I think unfortunately, that's true with the state planning and wealth transfer. The traditional model of, of wealth transfer is what I call the 4D model, and that's dump, divide, defer and dissipate. Right. You look at 99 percent of of estate plans out there that people do. They dump that money down to the next generation. They divide it up equally among their kids. They try to defer any taxes. And then ultimately, they, they dissipate that wealth. And um, so it's, it's a model that essentially says to the next generation, here's money that you didn't earn. We're going to give no meaning and purpose to it. And then we're shocked when people just run right through it. Um, and yet, that's exactly what the system produces. 
So, you know, instead of the 4D model, I talk to clients about what I call the 4P model, and that's purpose, perspective, preparation, and participation. Uh, you know, the, the, several years ago, my partner and I, we wrote a book um, called Entrusted, and it was really looking at what are the characteristics of uh, individuals, families uh, that successfully transfer wealth multi-generationally. And the number one, number one characteristic by and before by and far is that they knew who they were what they valued and what they believed they had a sense of purpose and that drove everything else that they do so you know if there's nothing else that you do for your kids other than help them have clarity on that and knowing who they are what they value and what they believe and having a purpose then I, then you've done more than any amount of wealth you can transfer them um, but I also think it's about perspective, understanding the world around them, understanding the opportunities that we have and the life situation that others might be in, not to make us feel guilty, but to realize the opportunities and responsibilities we have. It's about preparation. Um, the number two characteristic of families that we saw that successfully transferred wealth, they prepared their kids for the wealth. They didn't just prepare their wealth for their kids, you know. They didn't spend all their time with their with their lawyers and their accountants and their financial advisors. They spent their time with their kids, uh, teaching them about work and work ethic and about money and about what's a stock and what's a bond. Uh, and then it's about participation. You know, so often, so many of my wealthy clients, they earn their wealth through hard work and risk and stress. It was painful. And they want to try to uh, help their kids avoid a lot of that pain without realizing that the pain is what brought the value. And so how do you create opportunities for kids to participate um, without creating artificial pain, but in a way that helps them understand and appreciate what they, what they have and bring their own value proposition. And all of this that you're saying in my mind correlates beautifully with divorce situations, because when you're splitting up assets, and you may have not been in the controlling seat, the driver's seat with the assets for the 20 year marriage, your children are watching you and they're learning, they're seeing your purpose and your drive and how you handle money. And I love yeah, educating the younger generations and also showing them purpose and also showing them what it means to do work. And yeah, that's, that's all to me, that's also very easily correlated into the divorce world that I work yeah. in. Yeah. I, I do have a few more questions and they're going to kind of be off topic of what we're talking about, but can you talk to us about some stewardship and self-transcendence? Just what, I know you have some really fun topics on this. Can you just go into detail? Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting as, you know, I was looking at this and, and um, I've honestly spent the last six years looking at researching, uh, thinking about the topic of stewardship and it actually came from one of uh, experience with one of my clients, she's uh, she's really my role model. Um, and uh, anyway, she she has a mindset and mentality of a steward. Um, and she showed she showed me over the years what it means to transcend ownership. I think so much in the United States, in in capitalist cultures, we we tend to think of the pinnacle as ownership. Hey, if I'm the owner, I'm the top. And um, she really showed me something beyond that, which is stewardship. And um, stewardship is is when you go beyond freedom, 
for yourself and it becomes freedom from yourself. Um, and I see this with a lot of high net worth clients where everything that they own ends up owning them back. Um, whether it's a business or that second home or third home or uh, the different toys that you collect, uh, they end up owning you back in terms of obligation and cost and everything else, unless you can actually become transcendent of that ownership. And it, to me, um, a steward is someone who's fully invested in something bigger than themselves. So it's not about, uh, uh, you know, trying to just be above uh, engagement. Uh, to me, the most impactful people, they're all in, they're fully invested, but it's about something more than themselves. You know, you look back, uh, those of us who went to college, right, we all remember our intro to psychology and, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, and uh, at least I tended to remember that the, the pinnacle was self-actualization, right? You know, just becoming the best version of you. And actually, he said that the pinnacle was not self-actualization it was actually self-transcendence mm. and it's when we actually start to live for something that's that's bigger than ourselves that's where we actually start to see meaning and purpose and you see this with a lot of of parents especially moms who can invest when you invest in your kids you're investing in something that's bigger than yourself right um and so um but i i think it's so important for us to understand what are those things that are actually bigger than ourselves? Because counterintuitively, um, it actually frees us up from uh, a lot of the day-to-day -day concerns and worries and, and everything else. Um, and so um, I'm a huge fan of understanding the why, uh, your own personal why and the why of your wealth, um, and then letting that drive everything else. That goes right into the, the next question on what are some questions that people who have the most impact in the world that you've talked to, I know you know them all, and what do they have clarity around? Yeah, like I said earlier, um, they know who they are, what they value, and what they believe. Um, and um, once they have that, it lets them drive everything else. Um, I'll give you a quick example. I, I was working with a family office um, once and um, we, they wanted to be known by, by three uh, key values. They wanted to be known for loyalty with each other uh, and with the people they worked with, uh, integrity in everything they did, and then excellence uh, in everything they created. So loyalty, integrity, and excellence. Unfortunately, uh, the acronym for that's lie, but you know, let's set that aside. <laughs> So anyway, um, that afternoon, they were looking at an investment that they could have made a, a, a good return on, um, and um, but it was geographically remote. It was going to take a lot of work. It was going to take a lot of effort. And they'd been hemming and hawing about this thing for months. And so I just asked them, I said, let me ask you a question. Can you do this project with excellence? And they said, done. We're not doing the deal. They said, we could go make some money. Wow. Uh, we could, um, uh, you know, uh, get a good return, but ultimately we can't do it with the excellence that we want to be known for. And so therefore we're not going to do it. And so what had been months and months and months of decision-making, they were able to make a two minute decision once they had clarity on their why. Um, and then it drove what they did. Wow. What a great example. I really appreciate that story because that is just shows 
how important it is to know your values and know as a family. And again, I'll bring it back to divorce of as a family, this is a family unit going through that. And, and how are you going to get to where you want to be if you don't know who you are or what you're looking for or what you want as a family unit to, to look like a family office, same thing. I mean, that's family unit. So that's very helpful to hear those stories. And yeah. And I, and I think it's, you know, I do think it's especially an issue. I, you know, I see this with a lot of my uh, divorce clients, the, 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 the women, a lot of times they, they create identity by the roles that they're in, right? Whether that's that spouse or parent or something like that. And then those roles change and suddenly there's this, this loss of identity. And I think it's so critical to get back to understanding our core values. Um, how do we want to be known? Um, what is it that we value? Um, and then letting that drive everything else um, and let our identity be in those transcendent values that we want to express. Absolutely. That's the work. Like one of the first sessions I have with clients is talking about values in the divorce process because of that. So, oh, I love that. I think that's where we're going to leave off today because that's where everyone should start is their values and understanding that no matter where they are in life. So I, I appreciate you coming to on the show today, David. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with or tell us where people can find you? Yeah, if uh, there's any resources or any, um, I, I have a website, uh, davidryork.com on there. I've got a, a 11 minute TED talk on, on uh, wealth. Uh, I've got some articles on uh, the why of wealth, on culture, which I think is so critical, uh, especially in families, just in how to be intentional when it comes to culture and culture building uh, and other resources there. So that's probably the best place to go. Okay. Well, thank you so much again, David, and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining another episode with me, your host, Olivia Summerhill. Until the next episode, visit www.summerhillfirm.com for a discreet way to find helpful resources that can help bring you clarity to your divorce journey.